Well, good morning. Good morning. Excited to be with you this morning. I'm always excited. There's a joy in my spirit, and the subject today is joy. So, Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you for another day to, to bless you, to praise you, to worship you, to come and, and hear your word, hear what your Holy Spirit has for us, and to enter into the joy of your salvation and just the, the fullness of the joy of your presence as we're going to study today. God, we thank you for that. It's exciting, and, and we're just pleased and honored as Christians to be able to uh, to do this. For Christ's sake, amen. Joy is a word that's used a lot in the church, used a lot in the Bible, and it's occurred to me in my own life, beginning here, that for many years I really didn't understand what it meant. I mean, the real meaning, not just what it sounds like, not just these surface definitions, but going deep to understand what it means. I've been struggling as of late, and in my quiet times, prayer times, just praying for the Lord to do what we're going to see David did uh, when we get there in a little while. Just praying for God to restore the joy of his salvation in my life. The joy, the, this joy was not there. I'm going to make some confessions to you that I'm just like you, I mean, we're humans and we still struggle. And, you know, from the, all the, I don't know how to describe it and use the right language, but just the stuff that we went through last fall, through all the election stuff and all the political stuff. And again, I don't speak politically. I speak spiritual truth around political things. So don't ever mistake that. I'm not making a comment one way or the other in terms of political uh, biases or political preferences per se. I'm just speaking on what the Bible teaches about those things. And we've continued as a nation to go down a, a slippery slope the wrong way. And we're already in a bad place as a nation because of the, we are a nation of sin. We are a nation that's been judged. I've, I've said that to you many times. I've told you why. Just look at the sins of abortion, uh, every form of sexual perversion. That's laws of the land. They're not just permissible. They are laws of the land. No country, no land whose laws are in total defiance with the word of God can expect a blessing of God. So we're not one nation under God. That's been grieving my spirit quite a bit, robbing my joy. Other things going on, health issues, you just kind of go through stuff. You get tired and worn down. It's ministry. You wonder if it's doing any good, if anybody's listening. Uh, you know, the uh, the financial situation, all this stuff that just, just robs and steals your joy. We're going to talk about that more next week and the week after. But as I was reading and studying, I, I read this story about probably the most famous songwriter that I know of in my lifetime from the church side, and it was Isaac Watts. And in 1719, he wrote what many consider the greatest song of praise and, and worship, Joy to the World, Joy to the World. And it just struck me, and I made a note there, and I'm, so I put that in the introduction parts that I sent out on Facebook to announce the message what it was going to be about. It struck me that it was joy to the world, not joy in the world or joy from the world. And the way we lose our joy is when we start getting our joy in the world and from the world. And that's what we're going to focus on as we move through here the next few weeks. It sounds like a long process. It may be, but I think you're going to enjoy it. No pun intended. When you search the Bible, just Google, just do a Google search and look for the word joy. 
and you'll find so many things. And one of the things I saw was that there are over, was it 25, yeah, about 25 Greek, excuse me, 25 Hebrew words and 10 Greek words, Hebrew words in the Old Testament, of course, and the Greek words in the New Testament that are about joy. And again, it can be joy, rejoicing, joyfulness, different derivations of the word joy. And it's used over 150 times, over 150 times. That's amazing. And one of my favorite pastor teachers of all time, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, has this saying that we may be certain that whatever God made prominent in his word, he expects to be uh, conspicuous in our lives. Whatever God made prominent in his word, that's prominent in his word, when you're reading the Bible, something keeps jumping out, jumping out. He expects those themes to be conspicuous in our lives, that we would live them out. Well, the concept of joy and the thought of joy of all kinds was in the Bible 150 times or more. That's incredibly conspicuous and obvious, and it needs to be so in our lives as well. But let's get into it and, and try to understand what the joy of the Lord really means. Now, before we go there, we have to deal with one word that always comes up because people confuse them, especially people in the secular world. But I think sometimes people in the church or Christians do too, and that's the word happiness. Because happy and joy or joyful are not synonyms. Happiness is not joy. They're not. Happy or happiness is circumstantial. It's circumstantial. I'm happy when something goes my way. I'm happy. Maybe you're happy at work when you get a raise. You're happy when you get a promotion. You're happy when everybody agrees to go to the restaurant you want to go to. You're happy on any number of different fronts. I'm happy when things are going well my way. I'm sad when they're not. That's based on circumstances. Joy, the concept of joy and the word joy, all the meanings of joy have nothing to do with circumstances, right? They do not. They are all about the condition of our heart and our relationship with the Lord God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Remember, two weeks ago, we were talking about motives in that series on motives, and I talked about the motives of the triune Godhead. But we're going to talk, we're going to roll that into this today as we see that joy is part of that. Joy is not tied to circumstances. Joy is a condition of my heart and my soul, my spirit, depending on my relationship with the Lord. Joy can't be experienced outside of God. True joy, biblical joy, can't be experienced outside of God. Let me give you examples of the joy of God to help understand this, because we're going to look at it as both ways. It's a relationship. God the Father took great joy in being in relationship with us. Remember, I told you that was his motive. The motive of God came out of Genesis 1, 26, 27, where he said, let us create man in our image. God didn't need us, but he wanted to be in a relationship with us. There was a joy in all of creation. God created heavens and earth, and we came on the sixth day, created everything, and he stepped back and he said, this is good. This is good. It was perfect. It was perfection. God created us to be in a relationship with him. He created us perfectly to be in perfect relationship, his perfect joy, our perfect joy from him, and then given back to him. You see, everything was perfect. It was perfect. God took joy in all of that. The joy of the Lord came out of that. As we're going to see next week when we get into it, Jesus Christ came and found joy in going to the cross for us. He found joy in redeeming us. That's, that's unfathomable. It's hard to believe. How can you do something like that? 
we're going to study that joy uh, next week in Christ. And then the Holy Spirit takes joy when every time one sinner comes to Christ, one sinner repents and comes to Christ, takes joy in protecting us and keeping us, which is his role to, to seal us, to seal us. As I've told you before many times, if you're born again in Christ, you are sealed for eternity. Satan cannot steal you away. And the Holy Spirit takes great joy in that role of protecting and preserving us. So there's this joy of the Lord. that He just takes joy and pleasure. Those words mean pleasure and joy and gladness is another synonym. So when you think about joy in the context of not being happy, when you think about joy like that, think about it in terms of gladness, just glad. He has made me glad, David said in one of the Psalms. And then pleasure. He takes great pleasure. Pleasure in you and pleasure in me. Pleasure in his creation. And it was all perfect until when? The Genesis 3 world. And then everything was broken. And that joy and that pleasure got disturbed and broken up. We experience the true joy of God when we experience God. Understand that when we experience the true joy of God, when we experience God, it's all tied into that relationship and experience with him. Everything about joy in the Old Testament was rooted in the nature and character of God. We're going to look at this in terms of the pleasure that the God takes or the delight he takes in his people and how we return that joy to him. And I want to give you two different passages or two different uh, stories in the Old Testament. One from David is a great example. He's such a great example of so many things. And another one from uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, because they really... Uh, first of all, they used these phrases, joy of the Lord, and they understood the joy of the Lord more than anyone else. And I think they best helped me to help you understand the Old Testament joy of the Lord, what that means, and then how we can appropriate it. So let's look at David. I love David. He's, he and Peter are my two favorite characters. Why? Because they love Jesus a lot. They love the Lord God a lot, David and then Peter. And they screwed up a lot. David was the only man in the Bible, the only man in history called that God called a man after my own heart. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? That's great. That's a wonderful thing to be called. It is. But you have to keep in the context who David was and then what he did. And we know that David was a young shepherd boy called out by Samuel, anointed many years, anointed as a young boy, probably a teenager at best anointed to be king years later. Most people don't realize there's a big gap there. They, they brought him out. They anointed him to be king. But that didn't happen because Saul became king. And Saul was king, the first king because Israel demanded a king. That's when he, still as a shepherd, as a boy at home, not old enough to be off fighting the war with his brothers, he was taking provision to them. He sees this giant cursing God and cursing his people. And all the Israelites are doing is shaking in their boots. And oh my gosh, because he's like nine feet tall. That's what the Bible teaches is nine feet tall. The Philistines were big people. Uh, and Goliath was a giant among giants, nine feet tall. You know, a spear like a beam and all these things. And we know the story of David going in and killing him, you see. That's one of the amazing stories about David. But then we also know the tragic fall of David and, and Bathsheba. We know that through the lust that David felt, uh, he ended up having adultery, committing adultery. He ended up having her husband killed in battle, which is murder. His family 
became a terribly dysfunctional family. You think yours is dysfunctional? Go read the story of David's children from the different wives and all the stuff that happened. And you will go, oh, my gosh, how in the world did God call him a man after my own heart? You're going to understand that when I finish reading these Psalms to you. David was the one who wrote many of the Psalms, and, and they're just wonderful and beautiful to read because they are his expressions of loving the Lord God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, which he did. And then, as we're going to see in a minute, him coming back and confessing and repenting of his sin. So one of my favorites that I memorized a number of years ago, and I keep having to go back and re-memorize it because I can't remember what I memorized, but in Psalm 16. And in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, uh, David wrote this. I have set the Lord continually before me, continually before me. What a great picture for us. Want to hold on to that joy of the Lord? Want to feel and experience that joy of the Lord? Set the Lord continually before me. When you look out and see things, see the Lord God, see his throne, see him. And David said, I've set him continually before me because he is at my right hand. Always, always, always. I will not be shaken. I will not be shaken. I won't be afraid when things come to overwhelm me, when circumstances get so bad, when relationships get so bad. Therefore, my heart is glad. And there's that word gladness or joy. My heart is full of joy and my glory rejoices. Two different words for joy there. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory, this overwhelming glory that I'm experiencing in the presence of the Lord just rejoices. I'm taking that joy of the Lord and I'm giving it back to him. That's the picture that David is painting for us here. When you pray and when you meditate and put your heart in that, it will change your heart. As I said in the introduction, and the written introduction, this is not a game changer. It's a life changer. Understanding the joy of the Lord is not a game changer. It's a life changer. And that's what David saw. That's what David experienced. He went on to say, my flesh will also dwell securely. He wasn't afraid of his enemies. And he had a lot of enemies. People always trying to kill him. You will make known to me the path of life. And I have taken that phrase many times from my own life as it relates to professional life. Lord, where, where do you want to go? This ministry. If we'll, if we'll stop and sit and listen and ask, Lord, what's next? Or what do you want me to do? Am I doing what you want me to do? Am I honoring you best? What is it you want? David said right here, there's a promise from God. You will make known to me the path of life how I'm supposed to go. If you've got a decision going on in your life right now, there's something that you really need to hear from the Lord, stop, stop, and wallow around a little bit in his joy and in, in the gladness, rejoice in that, and then just listen. Just shut up and listen. Lord, what's next? What are you going to do with this? Where does this go? I'm getting ready to go do that. Some I love doing that. It's just hard to make the time to do it. And here's the phrase that wraps up this verse. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. When you get in front of the Lord, when you just get on your knees, wherever you are in your prayer closet, in a room, wherever you are, in your car, doesn't matter. When you get alone with the Lord and you come before his throne, when you get in his presence, it's fullness of joy. It's fullness of joy. And so all the stuff, all the demonic, satanic, worldly stuff that is weighing you down, it's crippling you, it's blinding you, uh, it's just wearing you out, 
It's discouraging you. It's depressing you because the world can do that because that's what Satan is supposed to do. That's what the world does. But, 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 but when you come into the presence of the Lord God, into his throne room, as he said, come on in here, just fall on your face, get down there and pray in his presence is fullness of joy. Not just some, but fullness of joy. You will be overwhelmed, overtaken by the spirit, by his presence. And all that stuff, at least for that moment in time, will be replaced by the fullness of the joy of the Lord. Oh, my gosh. Brothers and sisters, listen, it is. Just stop and do that. If this is where you are and this is this is resonating with you, then just make some time. Make some time. You can't find it. You don't have any time to spare. You need to make time and make it a priority. Lord God, I just want to get in your presence. Come before his presence with singing. That's another psalm that David wrote. This is why David, this is part of why David is called a man after God's own heart. This is the relationship that he had with him. Now, did he go do stupid things and screw up? Yes. Terrible, awful things? Yes. But so do you and I. And that's why more than anyone else in the Bible, besides probably Peter, I can relate to him. I love the Lord God, but I still make stupid mistakes sometimes. And I did foolish things before I came back to the Lord and was walking in darkness and all those things. Yet God held me and saved me and redeemed me and held on to me just like he did David. Now, to complete the understanding of this um, the Lord God referring to David as a man of my own heart, we have to look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the greatest psalm in all the Bible when you are in a place where you need to repent and get before the Lord and clean out your heart and clear it all up and get it before him. Psalm 51. I'm going to give you the two verses that tie into our message and theme today, the fullness of the, the joy of the Lord. But I want you to go back and read that psalm because you'll find yourself going through it and it will break you. If you're in a place that you need to be broken, those words will break you and, and they will absolutely bring you back into the fullness of the joy of the Lord. So I want to encourage you to do that. Psalm 51, you go find them. You go find it and study it. All right, but the but the two verses that speak to us today are this. I mean, Psalm 51, verses 11 and 12. D David has gone through tremendous repentance, just repentance and brokenness against you and you only have I sinned. He understands that. When we sin, it's, it's between us and God. We break that fellowship with God. And unless we come back broken and contrite and repentant, that relationship remains broken. And so David understood that. And in verse 11 and 12, he said this, it's speaking to God, just crying out to God. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And here's the phrase I want you to hold on to. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy, the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Give me a willing spirit, willing to resist, willing to fight, willing to hang in there, willing to be humble enough to come back and broken enough to say, oh God, would you forgive me of all these foolish, stupid things that I've done? Because he will. And he just wants to hear that. And David's willingness to come back 
despite all the things he had done. And this is that psalm of contrition after all these things, after the affair with Bathsheba, the baby was born and then died. And then Uriah, her husband, being murdered in battle. It's a horrible, awful, tragic story, perhaps the most tragic in all of the Bible, one of the most tragic in history. And yet David came back broken and repentant and understood yeah, he'd sinned against these other people. But when we sin, our sin is against God. Our sin is against our Father God. We are breaking that relationship. And David was all about, Lord, I need to restore this relationship with you. So would you restore the joy? Would you restore the joy of this relationship and sustain me with a willing spirit? Oh, brother, sister, do you see that this is why David is called a man after God's own heart? Because despite all these things he did, he came back and, and with a broken, contrite heart and begged and pleaded with God to forgive him and restore him. And here's the good news. He did. And so where we take not just comfort and solace, but our joy comes back is this. You've done the same kinds of things. So have I. We all have. We're not sinners anymore. If you're born again in Christ, we don't live in sin, but we still make mistakes in sin. And yet our Father God wants to restore the joy of his salvation in us and to us, but it takes that contrite and broken heart to do so. I want to give you one more example of this before we wrap up. David lived about 1,000 B.C. It was in that, that time frame, kind of easy to remember, 1,000 B.C., plus or minus. Now, we fast forward about five or 600 years. The nation of the southern kingdom, which was Judah, had been overrun and overtaken by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So there was no more Israel. The northern kingdom, as I've told you many times, was long gone in 722 B.C. to the Assyrians. The Babylonians conquered the Assyrians. And the Babylonians completed their siege and demise of Jerusalem finally in 586. It had been going on for years, but the final one when they destroyed the temple was 586 B.C. So they're taken back to Babylon. They're captive. Well, the next empire to come in is the Medo-Persians. And most times just referred to as a Persian empire. And so the Medo-Persians defeated the Babylonians just as Daniel had, pro had projected or had, had foretold to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, that's what's going to happen, and it did, because Daniel was among those. When we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, they were during that time, the Babylonian captivity. Now we go through a little bit further in history, and we're in what would be called the mid-5th century B.C. We're about 446 B.C. We're now in the uh, Persian Empire, and it's the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and uh, Artaxerxes, well, let me back up just a little bit. Earlier in that, not too long after the, the Persian, the Medo-Persians had taken over from the Babylonians, the king, Darius, encouraged the Jews to go back and rebuild their temple. It was amazing. God's hand of favor on them. And so Zerubbabel went back and rebuilt the temple. Now, that's not Nehemiah because that's coming next. About 70 or so years later, Nehemiah now is, is the cupbearer to the king, tastes his wine and stuff to make sure somebody's not trying to poison him. And this is that time, it's about 446 B.C., and the king is Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes of Persia. And he sees Nehemiah so distraught, and he, he inquires about that, and you know that story of Nehemiah, you can read that. And Nehemiah wants to go back and rebuild a wall around the city, because a city without a wall was considered, um, it, was, it was at risk. I mean, there was nothing to keep people from going back and forth in and sealing things and destroying things. 
there was nothing, there was no wall around it. And so Nehemiah wanted to do that. Not only did the king allow him to do it, he funded it and he blessed him to go and do that. And so during this season, Nehemiah went back and against great odds and locals and even some of his former old people that were just uh, against him, trying to defeat him and tear him down and kept sending bad reports to the king. He got it done. It's, it's, it's the greatest leadership study in all of the Bible outside of Jesus. It's the greatest leadership study, Nehemiah, because in 52 days, in 52 days, they built the entire wall back around the city to protect it. And so that's the context. That's the context for these verses I'm going to give you in the book of Nehemiah. They have finished building the wall. And now it's time to celebrate. The temple is there. Now, it's it's not the temple. You know, Solomon had built this most magnificent temple probably in history, the way it's described. But it was destroyed completely in 586. So now here we are 140 years later. A temple had been rebuilt years before, but it, it paled in comparison to what Solomon had done. And so some of the Jews were really distraught about that. It wasn't the same temple. Its magnificence was gone. And the glory of the Lord had left the temple, had left the temple. And so you have this wall built and now it's time to celebrate. And they did so by doing something they used to do frequently, had not been done in decades. And so I'm giving you all the history because this is what we're picking up in Nehemiah 8. And Ezra, the scribe, Ezra was a priest and a scribe. You know, there's a book of Ezra and, and others considered that he wrote other books because he was a scribe. So Ezra opened the book, opened the law, the Torah, what they had at that time in the sight of the, all the people. I'm reading in Nehemiah 8. And he was standing above the people up here. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Now, in some churches, and I love this, it's a great practice. When the word of God is read, if you're doing a reading straight out of the word, uh, whether it's together or just the pastors reading the passage for that day, if he's teaching in that manner, all the people stood up. I love that practice in church. They stood up in honor of God's word. That's where this practice comes from. If you stand up when when the Bible is read, this is where it comes from. They stood up to honor God. And Ezra blessed the Lord God, the great God, and all the people answered amen and amen. That's where the expression throwing out the amens comes from. My father was a big amener in the Baptist church when I was growing up. While lifting up their hands. This is where the lifting hands comes up. I love to lift my hands in worship. I have for many, many, many years. But let me tell you something. There are churches, good, solid Protestant churches, other churches that when you lift your hands, people freak out. They think they've got a flaming charismatic in the room or something. And it couldn't be further from the truth. And it troubles me that people are so puckered in what other people are going to think. (laughs) Listen, if you're worshiping the Lord God, Whatever you're doing, it's between you and the Lord, and you don't care what anybody else thinks. And so you're lifting your hands. Remember David danced? People think, well, that's irreverent. No, no, it's not. It's what they did. It's what they did. They lifted their hands. They all stood up. They said amen, and then we're saying the next thing, and then they worshiped the Lord, and they bowed their faces to the ground. They did all of these things as worship to God. Every one of those are practices that they did. There's nothing wrong. You might even say there's something right about those practices because that's what they did to honor God in their worship. Why? Because they're going to, again, experience the joy of the Lord. Now, here's what happens. Esther starts reading the law. They're reading it to all these people gathered around thousands and thousands of people. 
they hear the word of God, what happens? They begin to weep. They begin to weep and cry. Why? Because the law, what God had spoken to them, the love of God, what he demanded in obedience and all the things he told them, and I'll protect you and keep you. But when they heard the law read for the first time in decades, they were convicted. It's what we call conviction. The Holy Spirit's on them to convict them. And they said, wait a second. Wait a second. We've done none of these things. We've defied our God. We've broken his laws. That's why we're captives now to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. There is no homeland. There's no free Israel. And there wasn't until 1948. But when they finally got it, when they heard this, they began to weep. They were weeping because of the brokenness, because of their sin, that they realized, oh my gosh, this is why we're where we are. And they wept bitterly. But, but that's when Nehemiah came in and said, look, this day is holy to the Lord. We're celebrating the fact that he protected us. We built this wall all around. God helped us in spite of our enemies. And in 52 days, it's the most amazing feat. One of the most amazing feats in history. In 52 days, a bunch of Jews, Jewish men, who had a spear in one hand, laying bricks and stones with the other, looking over their shoulder, completed this amazing task in 52 days because God protected them. God's their protector. He's our protector today. And so Nehemiah said, stop it. We're celebrating today. This day is holy to the Lord. We're going to bless each other. We're going to bless God. We're going to worship. We're going to have a party. We're going to celebrate. He said, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is, is inextricably linked to our relationship with our God. It is, okay? In loving him, in obeying him, and in our prayer and our worship. And I hope that's been made clear this morning as we studied the Old Testament passages that really speak to the joy of the Lord. You know, as I've said before, no matter how much Satan or the world, demonic or however it is, maybe it's just that remnant of your own flesh that we all have, um, tries to tear us down. Here's good news. The love of God never wanes. He never stops loving you. There's nothing you've ever done or can do that will make him stop loving you. You can't. You just need to come with a contrite and broken heart like David did and repent and say, Lord, I've screwed this up. I have screwed this up. And there's no way to fix it. And he says, I've got a way. I've got a way. I made a way. I'm going to study that next time. I made a way through Jesus. Jesus Christ, his joy made in the, in the uh, coming, dying on a cross for your sin. It's the only way to restore the joy between us, between Father God and our joy, because his joy becomes our joy, and we return that joy back to him. That's that relationship. And if you're in Christ, then you know you need to do what David did and just get on your knees, on your face, confess it, make it right. And then just come into the presence of God because in his presence is fullness of joy. And go back there and remind yourself what that feels like. It's amazing. Oh, my gosh, it's amazing. And for those of you who have not and continue to reject this message, you think what I'm teaching and preaching is a bunch of nonsense and you're happy right now. I've told you happiness, and you know this in your heart of hearts, happiness is circumstantial because you may be happy as a lark right now, but something happens, big or small, and all of a sudden your life is affected in some way, big or small, and you're sad. Your happiness has been destroyed. 
It's circumstantial. It's temporal at best. But when you experience the joy of the Lord in Christ, it's not. It's eternal. And keep coming back to that cup and dipping our cup into that well that never runs dry and partaking of that joy. I want to encourage you to do that right now. And Father God, if anyone is listening this morning, anyone is listening who has not received of the fullness of your joy through Christ, I pray now that they would. I pray they did not walk away from this time, this message, this video, the reading, however they're receiving this, that they would not walk away again rejecting this, that, that the Holy Spirit would be prompting them, encouraging them, convicting them to come, to come and experience the fullness of your joy through the relationship with Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Amen. God bless you.